Welcome to another episode of With Open Mouths. Today we speak with Chao Tiana Miner, who is a Kenyan digital heritage specialist who works in the intersection of history, digitization, and public education. She has a background in computer science, having completed an MSc in International Heritage Visualization and a BSc in Mathematics and Computer Science. She uses digital technologies to unearth previously hidden and suppressed historical narratives, making them accessible to a wide audience and enabling community engagement with their own cultural heritage. In this episode, we delve into digital cultural heritage from an African perspective. We are about engaging contested histories, navigating digital activism, and proposing new futures. Hi, Chao. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Kanita. It's lovely to be here. Um, such a pleasure to be featured on this podcast. Thanks. Um, I, I wanted to kind of jump in, um, like right from the start, and find out how you started your personal journey into the digital field. Well, my personal journey into the digital field was one of, um, I would I would say, chance. Part, part chance and part design. Uh, but I I was very passionate about history when I was younger and I thought, or rather I felt that that was what I was going to study. Mm-hmm. But in the ways in which I think um, public education system, particularly in Kenya works, is that you're more pushed towards um, STEM subjects, so science, mathematics, and tech. And I was I had a natural aptitude for computers, so I decided to study computer science, which I really, really enjoyed. And after I did that, I said, you know what, let me still make my way back into the history, heritage discipline and combine the two. So So like what drew you back to history? Because computer science in my mind is like completely it's just a different field, like completely different. <laughs> It is what drew me back. I mean, I think, or rather, I I feel that when you when you have a, a calling or something that is innate to you and your interests, it's always harder to ignore it. I think, um, and I kept feeling that I still want to work within the heritage space. I still want to to contribute uh, my skills, my perspective somehow um, within the historical discipline and and industry in Kenya. And so I thought, let me combine the two. But in a way, now that I look back, I'm I'm really grateful for the kind of thinking and ways in which my background in computer science has allowed me to view history, in, in a way that is has given me a lot of agency mm-hmm. and, and talk about it more, but I think the digital has has definitely given me an agency to work with history, to play with it, to be creative with it, to enjoy it mm-hmm. and to communicate it in a way that if I didn't have the skills that I had, 
or the the foundation that I had, I do not know if I would be able to see things the yeah. way I do. Um, yeah. That that is really it's really interesting. You know, did did you so at university you studied history and computer science? No, and for my undergrad I studied ma- mathematics and computer science. Oh wow! For my postgrad. Uh, for my master's, I studied uh, international heritage visualization. Oh, and the, okay. and the only reason I found this course was because I was I wanted to do. I had a I had a scholarship, and I thought, you know, let me just do a master's in software engineering. And then someone in my life asked me, "But is that really what you want to do?" And I thought, actually, not really. Wow. And so I went went home that day and I googled I said to myself this is crazy but you don't you never know what's out there mm. and I googled masters plus computer science plus history and something came up uh, there was a program at the Glasgow School of Art and I guess the rest is history <laughs> wow I think I think that that is so incredible that you still you know you had this kind of feeling to go back um, yeah you know um what was it about history that you find particularly compelling yeah wow i mean that would for me be very much rooted in my childhood and in the homestead that i grew up in um i was raised by my mom and my maternal grandparents uh, we lived pretty much within the same com- complex or the same homestead or what we would call boma in swahili and my grandfather is an avid reader. He is a collector of books, archives, uh, old papers and, and maps and magazines. And I think getting lost a lot in his library and his world. But also that for my grandparents, culture was not something that was something of the past. Mm-hmm. It was very much alive in the home, in the items that were on display on the walls, in the conversations. It was not the other. It was just who we are and who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that had a big imprint uh, on me. And so I I very much go back to the nostalgia and the romanticism of sneaking into my grandfather's library and, and just, you know, stumbling across a book that looks really old mm-hmm. or a map or an atlas and and being transported to to other worlds. So I think it is a combination of history being, you know, um, what's past, but also culture being what is lived mm-hmm. um, and heritage just being what is embodied. And I think those three things were things that I had in, a, I was blessed enough to have in abundance. Uh, yeah. In my yeah. And, and, and to kind of, um, you know, have it embodied within you because of your growing up and because of, you know, like where you come from. Um, do you think that that um, background gave you the strong sense to try and hold like colonialism to account? To kind of get things have you know to have the to well to get, have the historical record to make the historical record um something that uh you can kind of engage with mm-hmm. you think that's where it came from 
I would say yes, not not overtly in the beginning. I I, I would think that my work has transitioned more and more as I've, I've entered into the space and I've dug deeper into certain um, stories and themes uh, into a form of now it it may appear to be a form of like historical activism in a way. Mm. And um, I would say that even though I did not start with that intention, my intention was always just that I love history and I want to share what I find. So even though I did not start with the intention of um, holding colonialism to account or this being a form of of reparative justice and and historical justice, I I would I believe rather that the um, landscape and the setting in which I grew up gave me the confidence to do that. Yeah, I you know like the first time. Um, Chow, I heard you. It was at our um, at the Summer Institute where you spoke about like transforming digital graveyards into digital gardens, and that is so. It's 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 incredible, you know. And and can you tell us a bit about what that means to you? Hmm. It is very much an evolution of of my practice and my thinking within the space um, because when I started looking at technology within the space of digital heritage, digital culture, the ways in which I approached it was that technology is here to solve problems, right? It's not here to create problems, it's here to solve things. It's here to make access easier. It's here to, you know, and so that was very much the orientation of the entry point between technology and culture that you use it as a tool to solve the problems that exist. Um, but working within this space and also having been inspired by several scholars, one of them being Temi Odumosu, um, who I first heard of the concept of the digital graveyard from, uh, I started thinking about the ways in which technology is also further entrenching some of the logics that I'm fighting against. Mm. So whether it is in the way in which people are described or whether it's in the kind of narratives that are perpetuated over and over again and that are being digitized or in how people are represented visually, the digital graveyard now sits in my mind as a very real possibility of what happens when we assume that the work of technology is done as soon as we have digitized things. Um, that people are not a core part of this digital heritage infrastructure. I think people are a core part of it. And as as with anything, um, for, for something to grow, it has to be tended to, it has to be cared for. You, you have to remove the weeds, you have to understand the seasons, and I and I do feel strongly that that is such a crucial part of digital thinking and digital practice. And, and that's really where the concept of the transforming a digital graveyard um, into a digital garden comes from. Because if we digitize all this data and we are creating huge, huge amounts of data sets that are just going to be left to lie idle, they will turn into graveyards. 
but if we're able to interrogate them um, to understand what it what it is that is harmful to this day within this data sets, what it is that is um, more likely uh, than not to you know to cause distress to other people, um, we have to be able to interrogate the data in as much as we want it to be sufficient and beneficial to others. I, I, I'm I just thinking about these huge um, digitization projects um, and how they're becoming like increasingly popular. Um, Agnes itself, like we are busy um, digitizing our collection. Um, what do you feel is is you know for, for people who have no idea about what this um this field entails um what is like problematic about just um digitizing which means you know um taking photographs from different angles and putting it in a database um using the same categories that have historically been you know provided um, and not including um, people's voices or people's understandings. Like, what are the what are the risks and like dangers of that? Of of um, you know perpetuating these things. Hmm. Now, I would like to to address that from maybe three three main perspectives, and the first one is intention, and not just the intention of digitization, but starting with the intention and origin of the collections that we are digitizing. So when you look at the ways in which material that is now held within museum collections was collected, those are very specific um, imperial and colonial way of viewing uh, native and indigenous um, people that had to fit into the lens of what um, the colonialists thought of them. And we see this in the ways in which objects were just taken from communities with very little context on what they were used for, who they belonged to. So you're more likely to find the name of the collector being the person who took the object or sold the object than you are to find the owner of the object. And once these objects were taken, once these artifacts were taken, they were not artifacts. Most of them were living items in people's homes, in shrines, in um, social spaces, in personal collections, you know. Once they're taken and separated from the people, the ways in which they are described in the museum inventories or catalogs is very simplistic, um, more often than not contains biased descriptions, incorrect, um, um, they're assigned to incorrect people or communities. Um, and what you find is a focus on the materiality of the object. So its height, its, it's width, um, maybe a description of what it looks like, uh, if you're lucky enough to find the community or the or the region it comes from, and this now is taken as and seen as the story of the object, right? And so when we start to digitize these collections, we are putting them online more often than not, and we are using the very same 
cataloging descriptions that I've mentioned as the basis of describing this material online. Now, you asked what dangers does this have? For one, there is very much an erasure of the indigenous knowledge of the perspectives of the communities that made these objects. Because their voices are not included in the museum descriptions, therefore they're not included in the online database, it means that that is essentially silenced or erased. And so if an object is described simply as a shield, that is all it's going to be seen as. Whereas if you interrogate this further, you can find out, for instance, that this particular shield was used during initiation ceremonies by members of a certain age group. And the ceremony took place every five years. It was made of this kind of wood. And this is the significance of what it means spiritually ETC. So there are ways in which the metadata, which is the, the descriptions that I just mentioned, are an entry point for someone who does not know much about this history. And if that is all you present, then you're saying that that is all there is to know. There's also the issue of time. A lot of the, the objects were separated from people. The descendants of, of these communities, many of us are trying to find our way back to our history. We're trying to do the work. We're trying to read the books. We're trying to understand the language. But in encountering these artifacts presented in this way, we are being essentially locked in once more into this way of thinking that was not ours to begin with, but now we have to depend on. And the fact that a lot of um, a lot of the people who use these objects or who remember and who made them or who interacted with them, many of them are not alive. And so there's also the issue of what is moving out of living memory, which is very, very crucial. And so when something moves out of living memory, we begin to depend on the museums, we depend on the catalogs, we depend on the uh, on the metadata or the online catalog, and we see how the foundation of that was inherently violent um, and inaccurate or biased to begin with. Yeah, yeah I, I that is um, I, I think that's so uh, critical to this idea um, that you speak of of doing history and of you know um, people being a critical part of this um, you know intervention into the digital sphere and I think not only like inter intervention but like reshaping you know mm -hmm. how. And, and I, I, I know that you do public education work. So how does, how do you do history like through your public ed education work? Mm -hmm. I, I, I like that question because for me, it also goes back to when I mentioned that I'm, I'm grateful also for my background in, in computer science, because when you're approaching like a, a software problem, you look at it in blocks. Um, you you synthesize it into modules and you say I'll start with the I'll start with this block, go on to this block, and then I continue with this block. And so that's sort of how I have approached history um, or doing history, as you say. 
that I look at, I look at maybe a historical theme or historical subject and I divide it into, okay, what are the action points? What are the blocks that need can be derived from this theme? So for example, one of the projects that I did was a project between 2012 and 2016, in which I traveled across Kenya, taking photographs of railway stations that were abandoned, uh, dilapidated, and were at risk of demolition to pave way for a new railway. Hmm. And the problem that I saw in front of me was the fact that the railway had never really been seen as something that Kenyans could own because it was built by the British in 1898. And there was a lot of romance around the railway opening up this wild, uncharted African territory. And it was the railway that was seen as facilitating European interests more than it mattered to the people who whose lives were actually uprooted and completely changed by it. And so that for me was the problem. And the building blocks for that were then, okay, one, what can I do? Um, I can take photographs of these stations and, and not just take photographs of them. The other block was but what is the perspective and what are the memories around these stations? And so part of the project was one, taking photographs of the stations, but two, understanding what are the memories that African Kenyans remember about these spaces. Um, and combining that for me was very much my first entry point into doing history, you know, not just um, feeling like I was beholden to the narratives that I read, but that I could change them. And also that there was evidence around me every single day that history was not static, um, that people still held these memories, that um, perspectives had changed, some had not, but there was ways in which I could interact with history as a living thing. And yeah, that's, that's I think, encompasses what I mean by history. And I have used this principle also in my work to document detention camps from the colonial period. The same um, foundational principle that history is something that is embodied within people. It is something that we carry um, and something that is reflected very much in our environment, in our landscape, in our buildings, in as much as it is reflected in the archive or the museum. Yeah. So um, you're saying that like your um, doing history is like process orientated. So you are very, um, you're very clear about like structuring what it is you want to find out regardless of what that is. And then you kind of, um, kind of go from there. Exactly. Exactly. Almost analytical in a way. Yes. Um, yes. And, and how do you um, come to, or how did these projects come to you? Like the, um, you spoke about like the railways and the penitentiaries, how, how do they, how do you decide? Because it's so, for me personally, I feel that um, there's so much, like almost mm -hmm. everything that has been written needs to be like reimagined. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> like how do you, where do you find like a starting point? Yeah, this, that's that's <laughs> that's interesting for me because my starting point, at least so far, has always been informed by 
my environment um, and what I see within the spaces that I am not just uh, coming into research, but I I live there. I it is a present day reality for me. Um, and so the railway project, for instance, was informed by the uh, a town um, where I studied a, a small town near the coast of Kenya that had this railway station, and that was my entry point, my curiosity around the railway station. So I would say it is context for me. It's very much the environment that I am in at that particular time, the context of um, of the history. Um, accessibility to different historical sources, but a lot of it is also just my curiosity and 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 my um, yeah, I would say curiosity in a way that's like okay, what I want to communicate to people the questions that I have for myself mm-hmm. that I, I I deal with every day. So when I'm talking about, for instance, the detention camps from the state of emergency during the colonial period, it's not a question that I'm presenting as something I already know. It's mostly I'm finding out also as I go along. Mm. What would I have wanted to find out perhaps when I was younger that I didn't? And and that also informs the work that I do. Yes. So how do you... You know, so you've got this kind of like process orientated like approach and it it feels it's kind of um, even though, you know, it's um, like in your mind, it's uh, divided up into these blocks that you need to kind of work through. Uh, there is a, a creativity and like an intuitivity, you know, you kind of like intuitively kind of going along. How do you translate this into like a digital um into the digital sphere? Mm. Well, the first thing and, and something that has emerged in the projects that I've done is that I've never started with the technology first. Mm. I've never been like, here is this brand new scanner or website. Let me find a, a subject for it. Mm. Or let me, I have the technology and then I go into history. No, it has always been the history for me. So that has always been the entry point. And then identifying that history, the second thing is resources, like what resources are available to me, both um, technically, both financially, both in terms of physical mobility. And so it has been historical. The history is the entry point. Um, And then looking at the, the infrastructure. And secondly, and thirdly, sorry, what audience do I want to reach? Uh, because I do believe that a lot of digital work only has impact if it is used. Um, it, it being used means having an audience or a particular user group or user community in mind. And so how this history is shared, where it is shared, is dependent on who it is intended for. And sometimes it does not, for me, it hasn't had to be the most complicated technical mobile application in VR, you know, it, it's always been like, I want to share this with as many people as possible. Um, where are they? And and so we have mostly used um, social media platforms, YouTube, um, our website, and, and had 
that as a way to communicate with audiences. So when you're asking how how do I trans how do I move from having the idea into a digital space, I think those three factors are, are big determinants in in how the work exists online. And and I suppose um, that would also kind of feed into the idea of having like people as being central. So it's like what how people would use or um, this information, um, mm-hmm. what is like accessible or how would they navigate it? How would they, you know, mm-hmm. um, like engage with it? Mm-hmm. What are some of like the projects that you've worked on um, that has kind of demonstrated this? Well, I would I would go back to the the Museum of British Colonialism, which is a volunteer initiative that I co-founded along with a group of other women from Kenya and the UK in 2018, sorry. And that project for us has very, very much been reflective of all the things that I've said, in that we had gaps in our understanding of of the colonial period in Kenya uh, or the the truth about what really happened. And so the history was the entry point at a personal level, but also realizing that many of my peers um, who went through the same education system that I did, um, who grew up in, let's say, similar spaces that I did, also did not have much knowledge of this history. And so... That was that was um, a way in which we entered the history, and then secondly, we decided to look at ways of documenting detention camps and seeing what exists. And this documentation or digitization, maybe I would call it, has been on multiple fronts. The first one is through videography and seeing what what remains of these sites today, what physical infrastructure remains. And we were so shocked when we found uh, a former detention camp that was turned into a school and is now is today is today a school. Yeah. And the students um still use some of the same structures that were cells. Mm-hmm. And there's barbed wire, you can still see the barbed wire on the roof. Mm-hmm. And you know, and so that very much was also a way of saying, of doing history, you know, not just reading about the detention camps, but seeing where are they? You know, it's estimated that the British colonial government set up nearly a hundred camps across Kenya. And at the height of these detention camps, 160,000 people were detained. And this is not to mention concentration villages for women and children, where approximately 1 million people were detained. And so the question was, where are they? Like they're in the history books, yes, mm. but what remains? And so that was also like a another block of saying, let's see, let's 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 see what remains of these structures, and then documenting them in these digital formats. We've also created three uh, D visualizations to help people have visual references because many Kenyans do not have a visual reference for these camps. And we know that visual um, imagery is very powerful in the ways in which it can communicate certain things, especially when a history has been rendered that it's mostly for academics to deal with. Mm. Uh, it's not people can interpret a vi- an image more if they speak different languages. Mm. 
And so the 3D renders have or visualizations have really of these camps and what they look like has really helped us um, in a way. But also I don't want to, to talk about digital digital work as if it exists in a vacuum. Um, it is very much still influenced by factors such as legal frameworks, copyright systems. Um, you know, there's still those kind of questions that we are navigating, even when we are doing digital history. And so, for instance, in this, in this particular project around the, the detention camps, we decided to create these 3D visualizations as a response to the fact that many of the photographs, the archival photographs are not in Kenya um, and they still have copyright restrictions. Wow, where, where are they? Are they in the UK? Um, a number, a good amount of them were destroyed when Kenya gained independence, they were burnt or dumped at sea. Um, and the ones that survived the erasure or destruction were taken to the UK and held in a secret archive for oh, well over 50 years until 2000 and early 2000s. That's when the foreign office in the UK um, admitted to having all these secret records of former colonies that they had not disclosed. And so you see, we're also working with factors such as these that are influencing. I, as a Kenyan, would have to pay 500 um dollars on getty to use a, an image of a detention camp in which my great grandmother was in you know and so wow. there's also these factors that are still at play when we're doing this digital work and i think it's important also to talk about them as part of the exercise of doing history yes and 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 you know, like what, what it actually takes. It's very like similar to the repatriation debates when African scholars want to see their heritage and it's all in like the global north. Yeah. Um, so it's completely um, inaccessible, completely inaccessible um, to study these things. Uh, but what I wanted to touch on was um, the people that are doing this work like I, I i'm imagining that it's teams of people who are the people that you surround yourself with in this um sphere that you know nurtures you and gives you the the like wherewithal to actually take this on because it's a huge um emotional uh you know like workload that's that's what it is well i would i would say first of all in terms of people it's it's not just been the people that i work with but the support system that i have had um i'm very grateful uh, for my family um that when i went home and said that i wanted to save a railway no one no one told me i was crazy <laughs> no one said why on earth would you want to do that and I've, I've, they've always been my grandparents uh, my siblings my mom have always been there to say you know what if this is what you feel is important we will support you and we will we will help you with the networks we will you know we will do what we can and so for that i think in terms of people as as you so rightfully pointed out it's not just about the work you do it's about who is 
who is supporting you and, and who is holding you. Um, and for that, I'm really grateful. In terms of the people that I work with, it's it's such a I feel I feel so privileged um to be able to be doing this work at this time because I recognize that there is a way in which um being separated from the direct impact of this history has allowed me to navigate it in a way that my grandfather could not. Um, especially painful histories and, and you have kind of the ways in which silence is transmitted across generations, especially generations that have dealt with the full blow of yeah. this violence. Um, and so I do feel privileged that I have one, the support, um, two, um, it, it, it is, it is a privilege, but it is also kind of a, how do I call it? Not, uh, a responsibility that I, I I hold in deep deep care, and I hope that I do service to to be able to tell these stories on 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 behalf of of um, generations perhaps that didn't have the tools that I have, um, didn't have the infrastructure to navigate the world and to have a global audience as I do. You know, we're sitting here. Um, you're in Canada, I'm in Kenya, and we're having a conversation about this history and this field. And so I see these tools and this place I am in in time as as also opportunity, the opportunity that it presents. Um, and I work with people who, just like myself, are asking themselves questions about who they are, um, are asking themselves questions about where they are in terms of this wild thing that we're now calling Kenya that was not even a thing <laughs> 70 years, 80 years ago. There was no such thing as, you know, Kenya. And so we are navigating this place of identity formation, nation building, historical um, reckoning, which is wild. Um, it is. It has so many moving parts. Um, but the people that I sorry, I, I really digress. But the people that I surround myself with are historians. They're people who are not coming to history, particularly as historians, actually, but as writers, as academics, as artists. Um, and I, what I see in this space today is that history is becoming a space that people can connect with, regardless of whether they identify formally as historical specialist or not. Mm. And I'm glad to be with people who embody that space, but also to be creating that space for other people as well. Yeah, I, and I think, you know, that's one of the, like, one of the, like, liberatory, you know, aspects of, like, the mm. digital sphere, um, that we can have these kinds of conversations and that also, like, artists and academics can have input into, like, a... Um, you know, like an arena that was like before just really, you know, um, like delegated mm -hmm. to computer science, uh, like specialists. Exactly. Yeah. And also I think it's, it's beautiful, like multidisciplinary uh, thinking, cross-disciplinary collaborations. I think digital humanities is, is, is such a powerful field in the ways it can 
it is enabling people who are speak who are seen to be speaking different languages to connect and and build bridges and and influence thinking in a way that um especially with what's happening to technology and we are moving in the direction of just like robots and ai and you know it's like there's the metaverse and then there's a this it's it's like where is the humanity in all this you know yes. where are the people who are talking about but what does this mean from a human perspective from human context you know and and i i think that digital humanities presents such a powerful way of articulating the nuances of our world today yeah and and considering like the responsibility you know mm. that people have um mm. chao i um i don't know how big of a question this is but like how would you like to see the digital sphere transformed um in like with regard to museums and heritage in both like the global south and the global north you you're doing it yourself in so many ways already thank you that's that is indeed a big question uh wow you know it always strikes me that we talk about how tech, we can do anything with technology we can build rockets we can you know the possibilities are endless but in some cases there are certain things in which we are taught or are positioned as well that's just the way it is And so just to give you an example um I was recently speaking at a at a conference about metadata structures and the ways in which uh the way in which um metadata has uh the potential to to have serious violence on on communities and culture and someone said but we've already digitized so much you know we can't and we 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 already have the databases so we can't change <laughs> and i was thinking about it in relation to what i just said about technology having this irony that yes anything and everything is possible but at the same time once it's done it's it's done mm-hmm. um so what i would like to see from the digital space or digital culture is the flexibility for things to grow um for technology to be responsive to um especially when you're dealing with such grave grave sensitivities as people's culture the erasure of indigenous knowledge i would like for technology to respond to this in a way that is about listening and not just building solutions and then transposing them because this is digital and this is the way to go like if we need to think about how we can improve this databases how we can change them then let's let's do it it's not it's not impossible mm-hmm. uh and and i i would like to see i think more boldness in that in that way and more vulnerability also mm-hmm. yeah. i i think i think that is that is taking on the entire kind of like universe of like the digital like you know admitting like vulnerability and making it flexible um you know it's it's yeah I, um it's that that's an incredible answer thank you so much um and like lastly are there any new projects on your horizon that you'd like to um tell us about any new projects not new projects particularly but um i'm 
I'm working towards entering hibernation research mode <laughs> in a few months. I would very much um, like to, I'm working towards uh, starting my PhD and I want to focus greatly on, on researching around African indigenous knowledge and ways of designing um, data structures for this. And so I might go silent, but it is because that is kind of where my head is and I'm excited to, because I've talked about it for some time and I'm like, yes, this is the problem, um, but what's the solution and, and how how can I dedicate my my time, my skills, my, you know, the, my experience that I've learned so far towards solving or proposing alternatives for this. So that's that's what's on my horizon at the moment. Wow, that's 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 a huge project and very exciting. And I think that we all like, you know, waiting to see like what incredible work you're doing next. Thank you so much, Chow. It's incredible. Your work is wonderful. Um thank and you. yeah. <laughs> I I just wanted to say thank you also for your questions. I have found them to be very thoughtful um and very engaging. And thank you for this platform that you and your wonderful team have provided. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for listening to With Open Mouths. Special thanks to our guest, Chao Miner, for speaking with us today. This podcast is hosted by myself, Dr. Conita Lilla, and produced by Agnes Etherington Art Center in partnership with Queen's University's campus radio station, CFRC 101.9 FM. The music is composed by Jamil 3DN and produced by Alroy EC3 Cox III. Episodes of With Open Mouths are released monthly and you can find them on Digital Agnes, CFRC's website and on your favorite podcasting platforms. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review and subscribe now so that you don't miss a single episode. We'll see you next time.